This episode of Gospel Bound is brought to you by Crossway and the new ESV Bible app. The ESV Bible app is designed to help you engage with God's Word on a deeper level, offering elegant, intuitive features to personalize your study, including multiple audio recordings of the full ESV text, audio playlists, customizable background music, daily reading plans, and more. Download the ESV Bible app on your phone or tablet, or visit esv.org to get started. Welcome to Gospel Bound, a podcast from the Gospel Coalition for those searching for resolute hope in an anxious age. I'm your host, Colin Hansen, and each week I'm joined by insightful guests to talk about their written work and how the gospel applies to all of life. Together, we keep looking until we see God working. Wherever you're listening, welcome. I'm glad you're here for today's conversation. How many biographies have you read or seen about the driven individual who has achieved personal triumph? And how many biographies have you read or seen about the relational person embedded in community? Maybe that's why I enjoy the novels and short stories of Wendell Berry, because he features most of the latter in Port William. Maybe that's why I enjoyed the new book by Kelly Capick called You're Only Human, How Your Limits Reflect God's Design and Why That's Good News, published by Brazos. Kelly is a professor of theological studies at Covenant College in Lookout Mountain, Georgia, where he has taught for 20 years. Now, this book aims to lift from our shoulders that sense we carry the weight of the world. I appreciate how Kelly situates theological truth in contrast with cultural expectations. You can see the goodness of God's creation in the gospel of Jesus Christ when you consider the message we hear from the world. For example, Kelly writes this, What an irony that our modern age, on the one hand, exhausts us by its calls for complete self-expression, and on the other hand, suffocates us by its pressures to conform. We must constantly adopt ever-changing fashions, humor, and music, and yet keep up the appearance that we are independently minded. Loved that summary there from Kelly. But he doesn't just find problems with the world's perspective. He also asks hard questions of the church, such as this. Why do we pit compassion against success, grace against growth, and tenderness against effort? It's a problem in the church when contentedness looks like complacency. Kelly Capick joins me on Gospel Bound to discuss the good news of limits, living in the moment, the fear of the Lord, and our identity in Christ. Kelly, thank you for joining me on Gospel Bound. Oh, this is great. Thanks for having me. Kelly, are you trying to solve a problem you see mostly in yourself or in others? <laughs> yeah, that's a great. Uh, that's a great question. The answer is yes. <laughs> um, I, I really have learned that I don't really know what I think about something until I have to write about it. And teaching is a similar kind of experience. And so this is something I've struggled with for decades, but also been theologically interested in for decades. And so this was finally my opportunity to, to work through some of these issues. Some uh, book writing as therapy, perhaps. Well, <laughs> it just, it's, it's one of these funny things that you can tell the difference when someone's thinks an issue is just theoretical or when it's personal. <laughs> and so for good or bad, these things are personal for me. It does make, it makes for a better reading experience. I, I see this line, Kelly, as a kind of summary of the book. Uh, you write this, if you don't see your finitude as a gift and a way of appreciating the gifts of others, then all you see in others will be their problems and the ways they could be better. 
Oh, man, that was that hit me in the heart. But how does that concept shape your argument in this book? Yeah, I'm, I'm deeply concerned that as Christians, and I'm a Reformed theologian, so I come from a particular tradition, um, and so I, I think I see this in us acutely, but I definitely see it beyond uh, just my circles. I think we confuse finitude and sin. And finitude is just a fancy term. We don't tend to use it a lot these days. It's really a fancy term for creature. <laughs> it, it doesn't. We tend to think of finitude as death, but actually, it doesn't have to mean death. It just means limits. It means limited in how much you can know, how many places you can be. You know, you, it, uh, those kind of natural, normal limits that are part of our good. And so, I'm concerned that we are constantly feeling guilty about things that are not sinful. They're just part of being a creature. And when we get confused between our finitude and sin, it actually distorts the Christian life. It distorts our worship. It distorts what Christian faithfulness looks like in our relationships. So I think the the implications are pretty significant. Could you give an example or two of, of something you might have in mind there or scenarios that uh, that occurred to you when prompting you to write the book? I often think about, you know, when we you know, we won't psychoanalyze you, Colin, we can do me, but <laughs> when, we, when I put my head on the pillow at night, you know, I don't often just think, man, I just, I was great today. I really, <laughs> I got everything. <laughs> and what's interesting, though, is when we think about our day and we judge it, what tends to happen, including for us as Christians, is it's not about just how I treated people, it's how much I got done. And I think the idea of productivity has so infiltrated into our understanding of Christian faithfulness that what happens is I don't feel good at the end of the day, not because I've been unkind to people, because I didn't get as much done as I think I was supposed to. And so all of a sudden, I'm feeling guilty trying to lay my head down before Christ as I lay my, my day before him. And I am confused, and it's hurting me because I have misunderstood what he expects of me, what faithfulness looks like. And, you know, did he really expect me to pray for two more hours? Did he expect me to, whatever your particular job is, to do that much more of it, to spend that much more time with the kids? It's just, we have such unrealistic expectations, uh, I think it's really hurting us. Is that sense of productivity, is that simply an offshoot of our capitalistic system and, and that mindset, or does it come from something else? Is it is it more fundamental or more conditional to our culture and, and time? Yeah, I do think it's pretty heavily cultural in ways that are very deep in us. It's and it's it's a confluence of things, right? It's it's kind of the rugged individualism, it's it is Western capitalism, it's modernity, it's the rise of um, certain forms of technology. So it's not it's not just simply individualism, it's not simply capitalism, but it's all of these things that I also think the church is just kind of, particularly in the West, is baptized. The whole idea of, you know, Ben Franklin saying time is money. We may not always say the money part, but we really do. When we, you know, it's it affects our exegesis when we talk about redeeming the time and how how we kind of always assume this is about efficiency and productivity and squeezing the most out of every second. And maybe that's not what faithfulness looks like. Another line that I liked in the book, you said, we have far less control of the world and even of ourselves than we would like to imagine. Hmm. I need you to explain why that's good news. (laughs) Maybe if you've been steeped in Reformed theology and God's providence and all that kind of stuff. But I think you walk out on the street and you advertise this, people are thinking, what in the world? Not time to panic. 
Yeah. I don't have any control over things, and what do I have? Yeah, it, that's that's great, and I'm I'm glad you're asking that. It's very interesting because I don't think we tend to come to terms with our finitude because we study it. We come to terms with it because it hits us in the face. And, you know, parents quickly, or not so quickly, are forced to realize, I can't control my kids, right? My We were married nine years before we have kids, and so, you know, now I have one in college, and the funny thing is I've been for years asking older parents about parenting adult children. And one of the things they had always warned me about or prepared me for was they, they kept saying, just so you know, it's going to be harder, not easier. And basically the reason is, is you never had control over your children, but you could play with the myth you had control over them when they were small. And as they go out and are adults, it's less and less clear. And so all of a sudden you're like, oh, I guess I need to pray, right? <laughs> Stuff like that. So the reality is we never were in control, but we can feed the myth. And, and you can always tell in our hearts how much control we think we have by the level of anger we often have about things that we're not controlling right. when we think, yeah. you know, and this is where manipulation comes and all those kind of things. Oh man, yeah, just definitely turning into the old therapy couch here um, with my with my little kids and thinking mm. about things there. I, you know, it's interesting you bring that up um, just to show you how relevant, you know, listeners, how relevant the book is. One of the most popular stories in the Atlantic right now is about this sort of breakdown between adult children and their parents. They just didn't expect how little control they would have over their adult children. And their and their and their adult children describing their entire childhood in ways that their parents would not recognize, whether that's right or wrong, as being full of trauma, and therefore their parents are toxic. Therefore, they should have no relationship with them. Therefore, they can't have any relationship with their child with their grandchildren. And just how hard that is, which is not to say there aren't real problems on both sides, but that's a a common occurrence now in ways that our particular culture enforce reinforces that would not have been possible again for better or worse in previous generations but that's a good way of putting it is that we think we think we, we have the illusion of controlling our kids but my goodness yeah that that is that is yeah a, it's, it's interesting can i just build on that yeah, for yeah you? do it it's interesting that my wife and I for a long time have told people, I'm sure it was my wife's insight and I'm just stealing it from her, but we've, you know, for a long time we've told parents that I think we take too much credit for the good and too yeah. much blame for the bad. Uh, and yeah. that is a, that's a manifestation of this, right? Um, we don't give kids enough credit sometimes for the good decisions and the hard work they do. But similarly, we think we're too important sometimes and act as if it's just pure. And I'm all about agency. I think our actions matter. I think it matters if, we, if you're kind to your kids and you're not kind. I'm not, I'm not a fatalist here. Agency matters, but it's not everything. Human agency is really limited. Yeah, I think that uh, point was also driven home when I had my third, we had our third child last year. And, you know, you kind of you're playing the odds with one or two and you see you're like this you're like that and you have a third and a third one's also totally different you're thinking yeah. what in the world is happening mm. <laughs> they, they yeah. all come with their own personalities yeah Kelly. totally <laughs> their own own people now you uh this was an interesting part of the book you don't like our discourse around identity in christ need you to explain why <laughs> yeah i well i hope people will read why i have concerns i i i do have concerns because what I have noticed in recent years, uh, let me first be clear, I'm a theologian, 
I think in the New Testament, identity in Christ is central. I think it's central to what the Apostle Paul is doing with the Christian life. I'm not denying that. But having said that, I have now gotten very nervous because I hear the jargon of your identity is in Christ thrown around often by people that look like me, white, male, often in positions of power. And it's a, and we tell people, oh, your identity shouldn't be that you're an you know, Asian American Christian. Your identity is in Christ. Your identity isn't that you're a woman. It's in Christ. Well, the thing is, all of us have all kinds of identities. And what happens is if you're like me in a position of norming power, we just don't know how much of our identities were smuggling into the, this, right? And so I'll, sometimes I'll find, you know, like, like, they'll say, no, my identity is just in Christ. And then you're like, well, what happens when the Republican doesn't win the election? What happens? And all of a sudden you see all these other identities, but because if you have power, you don't think it's an identity, you think your identity is just in Christ. So that's what, that's what I actually think a strong view of creation is important. You need both identity in Christ and creation to tell us our identity is in Christ because it subverts all other identities. But I don't have to apologize for my genetic background, my history, my skin color, my experiences being male or female. And I don't stop being those things. So I am a little worried how in our politicized age, identity with Christ has been used as a way to avoid hard questions. Yeah, I think that's a helpful clarification. And again, gave me a lot of insight when I hit that section on the book. Uh, You talk about we don't find happiness by focusing on it. But I'm trying to figure out, have you found any effective way to actually convey that to Christians or (laughs) non-Christians, for that matter? Because there's a whole happiness industry that sells us on the idea that our whole goal is to be happy. I mean, that's kind of embedded right there in the Declaration, isn't it? So the pursuit of happiness. So how do we convey that countercultural teaching of Jesus that you 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 may find true happiness, true joy, and you will find it in Christ, but you don't find it by looking for it. It's a byproduct as opposed to a goal, I guess. Yeah, I mean, as you know, that that's actually the hedonic paradox, which isn't even a Christian idea. It, it's, you know, the sanctioned idea that if you if you look for happiness, you'll never find it. You find happiness not by looking for it, but by these other things. It's a, it's a snake. And and Christians very much think of you know, you, we'd have to ask, what is happiness? But we think of it as, you know, shalom, as communion with God, as communion with neighbors, as a right relation to the earth. So it's a byproduct. And part of what's subversive about Christianity is that life can come through dying, right? Um, and that we can discover happiness by pouring ourselves out for others, these kind of things. But I do think and I know you get this, you, you, your, your writing contains this kind of thing. I think we convey it mostly by stories because we recognize something beautiful when someone lays out their life for someone else and we go, yeah, that's what I want. That's happiness. It's not, it's not a materialistic thing or whatever, but it tends to come probably more through stories than simply statements. And I think probably in ministry and sometimes preaching, we think if we just tell people rather than show people, they'll get it. And it's often more, we see it through lives and through stories. Yeah, I I think in imagining how do you convey this, the difference between standing up as a 30 or 40 or 50-something preacher and explaining that, and as opposed to pointing to an 80-plus-year-old widow 
who continues to serve and is 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 known widely for her kindness and i mean and you can just you see that in her tells is is worth more than a thousand sermons on that yeah I, it's so fascinating i love that example because i think and, and i think some traditions are stronger at this than others um, again, my tradition's not actually great about testimonies these days. I think we're so worried that someone's going to pump themselves up rather than honor God. But I think it really hurts us not having those stories. One of the you know, gentlemen I've gotten to know pretty well in recent uh, time, he had been homeless for 20 years. And in more recent years, he's gotten married and he's heavily involved in this, you know, not high education level. He's heavily involved, started this on the side, started this ministry to homeless people. And it's like the guy can't say four sentences without saying God is good. It's just constant. And and you're thinking, what are you talking about? You know, but he is embodying happiness, but it's different. It is so countercultural. And so being with him and watching him and listening to him reshapes my view of happiness for sure. Oh, I like that story. Appropriate. Your description of humility, Christian humility, is includes, at least, delighting in the gifts of others. I like that. Um, how do others, Kelly, help you see your gifts? You know, as you know, it's a longer discussion, but in the chapter, I'm concerned that we've misunderstood humility and tried to base it on sin rather than the goodness of creation. Delighting in others is a spiritual discipline because, and it's, it's actually like your earlier question about happiness— by not focusing on ourselves, we get reconnected with love and, and the delight of God. And we start to have eyes to see. When you're looking for what other people bring, you start to see it, <laughs> finally, right? It's kind of like cultivating gratitude. If you start to look for things to be grateful for, it's not that they weren't there before. It's just you're finally seeing what is the case. But the flip side is, sometimes people tell me and tell you and tell everyone, you know, Hey, we think you're you have this gift. And sometimes it takes courage to believe them. Not, you know, just like we need the courage to believe people when they show us our blind spots. It's it actually can take a lot of courage to believe them when they say, "Hey, you bring this to our community and we would really love to see you do this or exercise this gift." In that chapter there's a discussion of magnanimity and and pusillanimity and this idea of, you know, a humble person can do what are called great things, but what makes them great is knowing that they are small <laughs> and they are dependent upon others, and yet God has given certain gifts. But there's a, there a challenge with arrogance there, just like there's a challenge from imagining you don't have any gifts to bring. And both of those are sinful. To imagine you bring all the gifts or to imagine you have no gifts, they're both problematic. This episode of Gospel Bound is brought to you by Crossway and Dustin Benj's new book, The Loveliest Place, The Beauty and Glory of the Church. This book looks beyond the methodology and structure of the church to see how it reflects God's indescribable and eternal beauty. Pick up a copy wherever books are sold or visit crossway.org plus to find out how you can get 30% off and a free copy of the ebook. Well, let me, uh, let's head back to the, to the couch and you advise me on parenting. <laughs> you know, it's simple... I just love that, put this back in the context of finitude, the goodness of creation, God-ordained limits as being for our good. It's simple to say that I don't expect my kids to be good at everything. 
especially because they're little and so they're not really good at much of anything. Um, <laughs> but it is harder, as I'm sure, as, as kids get older, you watch your child miss the cut you know, on a team or fail an exam, flub the piano recital. What's a healthy way to show children that we do not derive our value from our achievements? One of the things that's been important in our family, just at, to start off at the center, is actually to cultivate sibling love. It's amazing how often even parents, without realizing it, cultivate competition between siblings. And we think it's super important to say, this one isn't about you. Let's watch your brother or watch your sister and delight in them and encourage them and come along. And also, when it went really bad, you come alongside too and comfort them and strengthen them. And um, that's always been, that's just a way of starting and, and imagining that. But I do think they have to see it in us too. And they have to see us admit we're not great at everything and to see us not do well and to see us depending on others and not thinking that's a sinful or bad thing, but praising other people for their help and strength and those kind of things. Oh, that's helpful. I love that. love that concept of the sibling love versus sibling reality. It seems very difficult as a parent not to compare your kids to each other. Um, and yet that's clearly not fair to them <laughs> for reasons that we already described right there of how different they are uh, from, one, from one another. And I love just Thanks for allowing me in this interview to just jump all over the place no, and all these great. little nuggets I that I loved. Now, let's. Uh, here's another one. How do you prepare students for a vocational world where they're no longer on the clock, they never leave the clock? Mm. Another line that you had in there about our work. Yeah, I, I think it's actually going to take a ton of courage. Um, in some ways, there it probably will be young people who are going to help, young Christians who are going to help the rest of us learn how to live more faithfully. Because what's happened is you have a lot of us who are used to clocking in at eight and leaving at five or whatever, but then with laptops and cell phones and everything, now we can work all the time. So we just kind of never stop. And I do think it almost takes people who are native to these technologies and have lived in a different way to reimagine, because we really do need to reimagine. And part of the interesting part of the research was all of us feel like we're working way more but what really interested me when I started digging into the research is there's a lot of evidence to say we're not. Yeah. It, it's just that we're constantly feeling like we're on. Yeah. And so I do think, it's funny, it used to be that the sign of, of power and affluence was all the technology you had, and yeah. now I've really become convinced <laughs> it's flipped. The signs of real power and influence is you do away with the technology. Yeah. Well, it's very similar to the broader technological transformation that the sign of you being wealthy in the in the past had been that you don't work. Now mm. the sign of wealth is that you work nonstop. Yeah. And the sign of poverty it has been reversed. It used to be yeah. that you had to work all the time. Now it's that you that you don't work. Yep. Um, it's just it's amazing how those things flip. But I think you're probably right on that. It'll be people who have the technologies and you expect them to be with it on everything, and you find no, they're the ones who have you know, seeing the dangers of it more, more clearly. Well, and just also, I mean, some, uh, most of us, we have a boss who emails us at 10 at night and they kind of expect something, but if you have enough power and affluence, you don't have to check your email. You don't, yeah, you know, <laughs> exactly. but I, I do think we need courage to just, no, we're not going to respond. We're not going to play that game. 
And I, yeah, I think we present a different path. Would say as a, I mean, as a boss, you, you also get to set the tone for yes. that. So don't send your staff emails or t- call them or text if you don't have to <laughs> at those times. Oh, and man, I know now no, my staff's going to hear me on this. Now they're going to hold them hold me accountable to that. I try that, not to, especially yeah. on the weekends. But I was just talking with the manager, and he, you know, this all this stuff resonates. He's so exhausted. He's so spent and everything. And so I just said, you know, let's explore a little bit. Let's think about this. What does this look like? And it was very, this is a manager who has 35 people under him. And I said, well, what if you actually said everyone leaves the office at five or you do these, you know, however many hours, nine hours, whatever, Monday to Thursday, and then everyone gets Friday off, given certain things he was telling me. And he said, oh, can't do that. Because if not in the office, no one's working. I said, well, is it really about, what if, what if you say, here are the goals, and if we get these done, everyone can have the extra time off? And he said, no, because there's people above me who won't go with it. So it's, it's just fascinating because everyone thinks, if I just had power, I would, I would be more sane. <laughs> but we're all into this. Yeah. And anyways, I, I just really yeah. believe productivity and efficiency are often the enemies of love. <laughs> and so we, Christians need to reimagine. And when you're in a position of leadership... I think it's, I, I just got an email, I'll leave it with this story, I just got an email just the other day, great, pastor, you know, the pastors write me, and the guy said, my wife wants you to come talk to me and the church leadership here at this church far away, like you to, but I told her, if you come, all the leadership is going to want to do less work. <laughs> <laughs> and and but i get that i mean i'm not trying to make fun of pat that is a panic right they don't feel like they have enough help as it is so someone to come in and say you don't have to do so much and so anyways that that raises all kinds of interesting questions to think about what what it means to be the church and faithfulness but yeah it's scary i'm, I'm sure i know there's a wide range with churches but i would say institutionally i'd probably ch- put churches on the end of the spectrum of being fairly inefficient. Mm. Um, and, and we often see that as a problem, and you'll hear that from business leaders often, of how embarrassed they are about how different the church is. But I'm sure that's true in some cases, but sometimes it is just love. Yeah, that's it's right. because the church is that place that's dealing with broken people, dealing with homeless people, widows, orphans, all those people who can't... Divorces. Divorces. All, you know, I mean, all those things, things just, that... Yeah. Yeah, they're not efficient. It's, they don't build it, your efficiency. It is. I, and I, I, I feel both for business people who are in the workforce and they want to help out. And I see this quite a bit, actually, and have experienced it. They mean well. They go into the churches. They want to help out the pastoral staff. They come in with it. And it just drives them crazy because of the inefficiency. But you're exactly right. I mean... What pastor doesn't know that what pastor doesn't make it to a Wednesday before their whole week has been blown up? Yeah, you know, because right. someone died for goodness sake. You know, right. <laughs> that's not efficient. Yeah, or die on your schedule. Yeah, yeah, and someone's you know going through a relational crisis and a child is just overdosed. I mean, none of it is efficient. Yeah, that's why I think a lot of pastors resonate with Eugene Peterson's work of those interruptions mm. are your job. Yeah, They're not stopping exactly. you from your job. They are your job. Which means as a congregation, we need to reimagine what we are expecting of pastors so they have space for the interruption, quote-unquote interruptions. Yeah. yeah. What would be an example of that? What might we do to change our expectations? Yeah, I mean, some of it's just 
not making pastors be at all all meetings. I think it's making sure pastors get time away. Very few people, I think as congregations, we have unrealistic expectations of pastors, but I find no one has more unrealistic expectations of pastors than pastors themselves. And so I think they, you know, I write about this, but I, I really, I, I, I can say this because I can personally relate. I know that most pastors, when they're talking about God's grace and his love, they mean it. They believe it for you and me. <laughs> but when we try and tell ourselves that and try and tell ourselves it's enough, rest, you need to sleep, you need to pray, you need to walk, you need to go away, I think it's very hard for us to believe that. I think it's very hard for us to believe Christ says you're a good and faithful servant. And so I think one of the things we have to do is tell our pastors, it's enough. You need a break. Guilt-free. Because they can't, they can't, you know, I, this. Some of my, I, I like Lloyd-Jones when he says, preach the gospel to yourselves, but I think it's an insufficient model and we've given it too much power and it's, it's, we need each other. That's still an individualistic thing. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the theology has to be reinforced with habits. It'll be reinforced with actual behavioral change there. And it needs um, to be reinforced with others who help us make it right. believable. Yeah. In a, in a, embodied in a community. This is probably a good segue on this. You say that you've seen marriages fall apart, ministries destroyed, children neglected, bodies broken, souls withered because of the attitude of don't waste your life. All right, you need to explain what you mean about that. Zeal is a good thing, but zeal can can be really hurtful to people. We all have different personalities. We have different abilities. But I've had plenty of people, I've, I've just seen, well, we all just listened to a whole series of Mars Hill, you know, rise and fall of Mars Hill kind of stuff. Um, I think Christian faithfulness has to be reimagined in terms of being a creature who's put in a particular place with particular people and unrealistic expectations hurt us. And I think well-meaning sometimes the expectations we place on Christians start to make them misunderstand the expectation God has of them. And so is it enough for me to be faithful in my sphere, uh, at my work, with my children, with my spouse, with my neighbors? And, and I think part of what's happened with that is it's an underdeveloped ecclesiology, to use a fancy term. It is looking to individuals to do what it takes the entire church to do. And so if we have a healthier view of the church and our need for one another, then I think we can situate that zeal in healthier ways. But otherwise, I, I do think it, it feeds into the every minute must be used in a particular kind of way uh, that I think can be fairly inhumane. And that's not how God made us. God's not embarrassed that we're human creatures, put it that way. Hmm. Might have even been his plan. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you, uh, you can see that through different waves of evangelical history. You'll see times like the First Great Awakening, like the uh, mid-century, mid-20th century evangelical rise there as well. You'll see a lot of the heroes when you dig into their family life, their personal life. It's not 
pleasant. Like you said, you can also see that in some of our own day as well. Yeah, I mean, you take A.W. Tozer, whose wife said, yeah, he loved Jesus. I'm not sure he loved me, you know, and I don't, that's a problem. It's just a yeah, problem. Yeah, I mean, you, you, yeah, you look at that from Bob Pierce World Vision, then you go back to Wesley's Whitfield, people like that. Again, you, you celebrate them for these amazing accomplishments, but it's just interesting when you reframe it a little bit and you wonder what exactly is God calling us to? And what is he expecting of us? It's interesting. So I teach a class on Christian spirituality, and um, we often go over to to Rome. And anyways, uh, and one of the things the students were reading about was all of this missionary work, and some of it like you're alluding to, and these incredible missionaries who've done all these things, and the devastating effects on their families. And one of the things that was so insightful, I was so happy with my students of this, but one of the things they said is, some of this work is really good and should be done by single people. Hmm. And in, anyways, it was an example where here's a bunch of single people who said, our failure to honor the vocation of being single has, has made this even more problematic than it potentially is, right? And so uh, it's, it's an example. Christians can't have it all. No one can have it all, <laughs> Um, I mean, there are legitimate questions to raise about some of the the endeavors that were taken. But yeah, it's not great if you don't see your spouse for 14 years. You know, and and I in the story in the book I give examples of this, right? And it's but it's called radical Christianity. That was that's not a that's not a 20th 21st century thing. That was a 19th century thing. You know, radical Christianity, and it was devastating. Well, I mean, if if we're surprised by the comment about maybe it should be single people doing this, then maybe we just need to go back and read Paul yeah. and ask, why. oh, oh, maybe that's why Paul made that point. And maybe yeah. that's why Paul did what Paul did. Right. <laughs> so, and, and Jesus. And Jesus himself, of course. We can, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of room for speculation there about all the different reasons. <laughs> um, but, uh, but absolutely, it certainly fits well because Paul cites him, of course, as an example there. Oh, man, I got a lot of questions I otherwise want to ask, but I want to get to my final three with Kelly Capick. We're talking about you're only human, how your limits reflect God's design, and why that's good news, published by Brazos. So I'm going to get to the final three here with with Kelly. Kelly, first, how do you find calm in the storm? Hmm, That's a good question. For me, uh, probably two things in particular. to be honest with you, mornings are quite significant for me, extended quiet mornings in prayer and, and scripture. I'm a Presbyterian, but I've actually come to believe that God actually is active and working and, <laughs> and, and guides us and directs us. And so anyways, I, that's been meaningful. And for me, spiritually, some of the hardest times are when I'm on vacation and different rhythms and stuff. So uh, that's important. But I've also, as I've gotten older, have really learned to value walks and being in nature just the other day, uh, feeling frazzled with a lot of work and other things. And I just found myself sitting in front of a pond and, um, yesterday on Sunday and I, it was, it was so good for my soul. So anyways, I, I do think for me, some physical movement and the quiet mornings. Good one there. Second, Kelly, where do you find good news today? I think I find good news by being with actual Christians on the ground who are doing things, I just, not in the news, not in the Christian political pundits or otherwise. Um, like I mentioned, Markel, 
this guy had been homeless for 20 years. I find good news being with him and his wife and the ministries they're doing, being with someone who's in prison, who's become a Christian, being with my children, being with students gives me some hope, stuff like that. Those who aren't jaded, those who are actually seeing Christ work. <laughs> yeah, well, I got a chance last fall just to meet with a number of your students, which was a wonderful, memorable experience for me. Uh, last of the final three, what's the last great book you've read? The last great book I've read is actually an old book. Um because of a project I'm working on right now, I was going to hold it up, but I guess your, your listeners can't see it. <laughs> well, I can see it. You can still hold it up yeah. to me. <laughs> but it's called Worship. It's, it's Theology and Practice, and it's by a, a Dutch theologian in the first half of the 20th century, and um, it's just a stunning book on what we're doing in corporate worship and liturgy, and, um, but that takes us into a whole other discussion. What's the, what's the name? On. Who's the author? J.J. Von Allman. A-L-L-M-E-N. Okay. All right. Well, but it's a, future, a future appearance on Gospel Bound. <laughs> uh, so my guest here and my friend Kelly Kabak, and we've been talking about his book, You're Only Human, How Your Limits Reflect God's Design and Why That's Good News. It's new out from Brazos. Kelly, thanks again for joining me on Gospel Bound. Thanks. This was fun. I appreciate it. Thanks for listening to this episode of Gospel Bound. For more interviews and to sign up for my newsletter, head over to tgc.org slash gospelbound. Rate and review Gospel Bound on your favorite podcast platform so others can join the conversation. Until next time, remember, when we're bound to the gospel, we abound in hope. Thank you.